Hi, and welcome to Happiness Through Hardship, the podcast, where we share positive stories and suggestions about finding hope, resources, and connections to help us all get through hard times. I'm Karen Sullivan, a mom, an author, and a stage four cancer patient who's always looking around me for inspiration. I believe in surrounding myself with people and experiences that make me smile. And that's what I'm hoping to do for you today. So grab your favorite drink, get cozy, and let's get started. I am so excited to introduce you to Educator, New York Times bestselling author, speaker, and activist, Julie Lithcott-Hames. In fact, I've been waiting a year for our schedules to blend so that I can share her wisdom with you. Julie's highly decorated, a bachelor's from Stanford, JD from Harvard Law School, and master's from California College of the Arts. She's also, as I mentioned, a New York Times bestselling author and has three books, How to Raise an Adult, Your Turn, How to Be an Adult, and Real American. In these, she covers topics she's passionate about, parenting, adulthood, race identity, and the process of navigating obstacles, or shall we say, life. And while she's been seen on some of the biggest stages, from TED Talks to Good Morning America, she honestly feels like she's my favorite neighbor that lives next door. She values kindness, hard work, and creating a meaningful and purpose-driven life. And that is so evident when you hear her talk. And that might be part of the reason why I just feel so compelled to share her words. Julie, I am incredibly grateful to share the mic with you today. Thank you for coming out to talk about this epidemic of helicopter parenting and sharing your advice on how we can effectively help our kids and even ourselves as we navigate through. Karen, that was such a beautiful bio. My goodness, I have the privilege of being on podcasts and giving talks and getting introduced and that you said, I feel like a favorite neighbor is such an honor. And so thank you for doing me that honor. Also, I I want to thank everyone who's going to spend this time listening to our conversation. I think you and I are trying to offer insight, ideas, stories um, from our own journeys with the purpose of helping others. So I know we both have that intention today. And I just invite everyone listening to to notice what comes up for you as Karen and I speak, because we're doing this for you. We're trying to we're trying to be of use, and we hope we will be. Well, and as you say that, I'm thinking to my experience in reading one of your books, and this was, I believe, your first yeah. book. And on the video, I'm showing how to raise an adult. I will say that I like to be prepared. And so when I found out I was pregnant, and mind you, for those who know me and know my story, I'm a two-time cancer survivor. And for me to get pregnant was a miracle. Well, for most people to get pregnant is a miracle, right? Uh, however, when I got that news, I started reading the books, feverishly reading the books, going to the websites, reading everything so that I could be prepared. Well, as they all say, no one really prepares you. It's kind of life that prefer- prepares you. And... I can say that once my son was born, I jumped back into trying to figure him out as well as figuring out my corporate job and being a wife and playing all these different roles. I never went back to reading until, and I shouldn't say reading, but reading about my parenting uh, until about a year ago. I was sitting in the baseball parking lot for one of my son's practices talking to a mom and she was like, you have to read this book, Karen. And at first I was like, oh, are you telling me I'm a helicopter parent? And she's like, no, but you know, I think we all could learn how to let go a little. Mm. 
And so I took it to heart and I thought, you know, maybe it's a good time. My son was in seventh grade and man, I remember seventh grade was a hard year for me. Uh, I think he did okay in middle school, but we all could say middle school, you know, it's just a little tough. Uh, But when I started reading the book, I couldn't put it down. The first like third of the book is talking about how we got to where we are. Can you share, whether it's some of the stories or just give a little bit of a background on how this generation of parents became who we are and how we do parent differently than how we were raised? Yeah, um, there was a whole lot at work in the mid 80s. And that sounds like a long time ago. And it, and it was. I'm 55. So I'm Gen X. Uh, came up mostly in the 70s and early 80s. And um, I know that a lot of change was afoot in the early to mid 80s. Because when I was a college dean, uh, wondering in 1998 and 2000 and 2002 and four and so on, wondering why are college students less equipped these days than they were mere years earlier? Why are their parents making phone calls to the dean or to the professor? Why are their parents getting involved in roommate problems? Why are their parents trying to help them fix a flat tire from 3,000 miles away or helping them find a class, uh, their next class from a continent away? Why are parents so handholdy of college students? And I became curious about the the behavioral change in parents. I was I was looking at, okay, what what factors in childhood for these students might have led to this? And that's when I honed in on what was changing in the mid eighties. And in a nutshell, five, I think it's five things. Let me see if I can get them all. Stranger Danger was born in 1983, which with a terrifying movie uh, that everybody watched called Adam about the abduction and murder of a young child in Florida. Um, It scared us all. And of course, Stranger Danger is a terrible concept, but we've curated our world to make sure children are never alone, which has really hampered their independence. So we've got to, we've got to be more nimble and smart than just don't talk to strangers. The skill is, you know, how to discern the bad stranger from the 99% of humans who are fine. So Stranger Danger was born. The play date was born in 1984. Children used to find friends on their own, arrange play on their own, but we became a society very worried about you know, what could happen when kids did that. Now we need parents to put play in the calendar, arrange the play, tell them how to play. That was 84. We became a nation enamored of um, of kind of the self-esteem movement. It was also the mid 80s, uh, ribbons and trophies and certificates and awards uh, for just being on the soccer team, not for winning at anything. And so there was this culture and climate of parents are always there to praise and and applaud and so on. And uh, so the parents are really hovering on the sidelines of every kid activity, just waiting for the next opportunity to say, great job, buddy. Um, and that's not inherently bad, but it, it it led to this climate of like, parents are always there. Parents are always watching. You're never out of the mind, the, the eyesight of your parents. Then academically, they wrote a book called A Nation at Risk, saying American kids weren't doing as well versus kids in other countries, and we needed more testing and more teaching to the test. And so our our kids' academics became more watched over by parents. Um, And then finally, we became safer in a lot of really important ways. Um, Seatbelt laws were passed finally in every single state. Um, Bike helmet laws, infant and child car seat laws all of these things were new as requirements state by state in the 80s and and they saved lives but it led to this mindset of we can safeguard ourselves and our kids from everything it led to the bubble wrapping the edges of coffee tables and you know putting little 
don't, you know, anti-skid protection on the bottom of your kid's socks so they don't fall as toddlers. Well, toddlers have to fall in order to learn how to get back up and strengthen their core and their little thighs. And so we became overly cautious. We became overly safety conscious. We became this hovering cloud of worry over our kids' lives. All of those things happened in the mid-80s. The term helicopter parent was coined by 1990, I believe. And the first kids to have the first play date in 84 were the first to come to college in the late 90s with parents who were still really trying to handhold them through life. And I shake my head because I, one, I remember all this, everything you brought up, I remember it. And, and then on the flip side, I sit here shaking my head and being like, okay, I know it's not good that I'm holding my hand and trying to protect my son from everything. But then again, aren't we all? And, and I think, you know, it depends on the circle of people you live, the community, and so on. But I would love for you to speak about, okay, you've got some parents here that know essentially we should let go, give them more independence. But maybe one, we're so used to doing what we're doing. How do we let go? Or, you know, or maybe before we get to the how do we let go, what are the ramifications? What have you seen? I mean, you were the dean at Stanford. I know you're a parent yourself. You worked in academia for a long time. What have you seen that has become a result of these overcautious parents? Yeah, I'll give you a couple examples. And let me let me say right off the bat um, that, yes, I am a parent. I have a new 24-year-old and a soon-to-be 22-year-old. And here I was, this dean, dismayed by the handholding of parents on my campus, which happened to be Stanford. It wasn't a Stanford problem. I would get together with administrators from around the country for national conferences, and they were all talking about the same stuff we were, which is, my God, why are parents so worried? Why don't they trust that their college kid has any skills anymore? What has changed? And so there I was, very eager to talk about my concerns and advocate for youth to have the chance to try and fail and try again. And back off parents. And then I came home for dinner one night with my own kids. My son was was 10 at the time. My daughter was eight. And I leaned over his dinner plate and began cutting his chicken. And that was my, oh, hell moment. I was like, you know, it was like I was visited by Dickens's ghost of Christmas future who said, Julie, if you ever want that boy to be independent, you need to stop cutting his meat. And I, I knew what I'm saying is I knew I was a part of the very problem, I was very happy to criticize. I knew that if I was cutting the meat of a 10-year-old, I was not going to be able to let go of an 18-year-old because there are so many life skills that he has to develop between cutting meat and being ready to leave our home and, and thrive on his own. So I realized to my horror that I was already in the act of undermining my kid's chance of developing skills and competence and independence. I realized I was part of the problem, which made me soften my critique, be much more compassionate about why parents do it, because I'm just trying to help my kid, right? Well, that's what we're all trying to do. And uh, it was quite enlightening and humbling, I will say, but I wanted to double down on what to do about it, because I was seeing the harm in the 18 to 22-year-old set when they had been overly handheld, and I didn't want to keep doing that to my own kid. Here is, you know, of course, we all want to help our kids. That's As parents, we're supposed to keep our kids safe. The trouble is we have forgotten that we'll be dead one day. And so if your keep my kids safe plan is I'm always there for them, that's not a long-term strategy. 
we keep our kids safe by teaching them how to be smart out there, how to develop good instincts, how to solve their own problems so that they can become this self-reliant person who can craft a life for themselves, regardless of what's happening with their parents. Okay. We don't need them to be independent at five or even 12, but we should hope that, you know, by 18, 20, 25, pick an age, 39, at some point, your kid wants to be able to do for themselves. I was on Kelly Corrigan's podcast and she told me her dad said, there's, there's no greater buzz than that, which comes from solving your own problems. And it's true. My daughter right now is in Europe. She got her passport and ID stolen and wallet. And my baby girl, is in Portugal. And this just happened. And, you know, the, the me of old would want to like figure it out, handle it, like soothe, soothe, soothe. Don't worry, kid. I've got this. But I have learned that what she needs is unconditional love. Oh my gosh, this sounds so hard. I'm so sorry this happened to you, baby. Oh my gosh, how awful. Like she needs to hear my compassion. And then she needs to hear me say, I know this sucks. And I also know you're going to figure this out. We are here for you. If we can answer any questions, if we can brainstorm with you, but you know, I know you're going to figure this out. That is the most loving and empowering thing we can say to a kid at any stage, unless it is a true emergency and they're bleeding at the side of the road where we really do have to be the one to carry them to safety. Um, the vast majority of problems they encounter in life are for them to figure out, and they can. There's one example that I that I have to share, which is sort of the opposite of what I just you know try to do with my daughter. And I wrote about it in How to Raise an Adult. You know, there was a mom so overly concerned with how her poor little investment banker son was doing, right? Rich as hell, paid up the wazoo to be a hundred hour a week worker on Wall Street. And she just thought her baby boy was being worked too hard, despite the amount of money he was getting for that, you know, those hours. So she took it upon herself to look up his boss's phone number, call the boss who was at his desk on a Sunday. And she gave him a piece of her mind. And her son walks into the big skyscraper in Manhattan the next day, Monday morning, and security won't let him pass the security gates. Instead, they hand him a banker's box full of his personal items from his desk, his photos, his pens, his post-it notes, you know, and there was a post-it note on the top of that box. And it said, ask your mother. She got her son fired. She was trying to protect him. And she basically taught the boss, like, my son is not an adult. I'm trying to fight his battles for him. And the boss was like, that is the last person I want working for me. I was <laughs> flabbergasted when I read that. But on the same note, not that I could see it happening because I wouldn't go to that extreme, right? You say that. But there are things that lead up to that. Right. What other things are we doing on a, on a smaller level that, to your point, are hindering yeah. our kids' confidence? Right. Or you were saying you teach them but also help them get good instincts right so if you think about it if this guy in in an analyst in the investment banking world fresh out of college let's say he's 22 23 right mom decided i need to talk to that authority figure on behalf of my son cuz i'm not happy with how how hard he's working my son now anybody in their right mind i think knows they work you to death in investment banking and the exchanges they pay you a shit ton of money. Okay. So that's the deal. And, you know, that's the trade-off. I mean, corporate law could be said to be the same. Like there are certain professions and that's the exchange. A lot of money, a lot of hours, live with it. Or, you know, quit if you don't want the hours. And 
you know, you know, we won't get paid that anywhere else, but that's the trade-off. She kind of wanted her son to have it both ways. Like, I want him to be able to work for you, but you need to give him a break. Well, so um, first of all, did she, did her son want her to make that call? Quite likely, no. If we have the instinct to like step in with an, a, a third party on behalf of our kid, we should probably check with our kid first. Do you want me to intervene or do you want to just vent? If he was venting to her, that's probably all he wanted. He didn't want her to take the next step and own it, right? So check in with your kid rather than assume is is kind of an important gauge. And um, also be be aware, like if you're... If your kid is going to have a tough conversation with a boss one day, what are you doing in childhood to prepare them for that? You know, when they're in sixth grade and they're unhappy with their, they're struggling in school, do you just go in and yell at the teacher or do you ask for a meeting with the teacher and your kid and let your kid take the lead in talking about what's tough for them with you there to provide backup, you know, to, to mention things your kid might've forgotten to say, what are you doing to empower your kid to speak for themselves they should be doing more and more and more of that, really from late elementary school, mid-elementary school onward. This is good. I want to dive deeper here. What other advice and tips can you give us parents? Because you're sitting here talking about elementary school that seems so young, but yet each, you know, each age is the next step right. to the next. Right. So let me back it all the way up. Okay. I'm going to back it all the way up to age one. Roundabout age one. Most of our children take their first step. And until that moment, they uh, they can only get places when we carry them or put them in a stroller, but now they can walk. They're learning to walk. We tolerate their discomfort. We tolerate their frustration. We applaud their effort. We, in fact, videotape it or put them on FaceTime and get the whole family watching as it happens. Like they fall, we clap, Okay. We don't helicopter parent. The helicopter parent version there would be get on your knees, put two fingers under of from your hand underneath their left armpit, two fingers underneath their right armpit, put your body right up against them and walk them forward. You're on your knees and you are helping them walk. And if they start to fall, you catch them with your fingers, right? So they never fall. And you manage to walk them across the carpet to the other parent or family member who's over there. And you say, we walked. And the answer from the universe is, oh, hell no, you didn't. You know, your kid didn't learn a darn thing other than I will always be held up, propped up by my parent. That's not good for their developing psyche, let alone their developing quads and core and sense of balance. They have to fall and develop the strength to get back up. And so we know that intrinsically, helicopter parenting hasn't yet invaded uh, the walking space, because we know they won't actually learn to walk if I do it for them. So I want us to all remember that moment when we were delighted, like we removed the hard objects that they could impale themselves on if they fell. We create made sure the environment was a safe one in which to practice this skill. But we let we let them do it. And that's the same mindset we have to bring to, okay, now they're five, what skill are they learning? And now they're seven, what skill are they learning? They have to tie their own shoes. They have to wipe their own butts. They have to bathe themselves. They have to bring their backpack to school. There are people walking their seventh graders, and I'm talking about able-bodied people who do not have significant diagnoses or disabilities, seventh graders whose parents think, I need to walk her into her classroom and hang her backpack up. Like, why are you living your kid's life for them? Why don't you have enough of a life such that you're doing healthy, fun adult activities and your kid can be a seventh grader without you having to hold their hand? 
what's missing in your life such that you don't want to teach your child, let your child have the childhood experiences that build the competence and ultimately the mastery, capability, sense of independence where they can do everything? Well, that's a really good question. And I feel like I saw you maybe say somewhere, one of your TED Talks, like sometimes this isn't about them, it's about us. And what can we do as parents, to, whether it's letting go or just providing more space for them to be them, not us to make them the person we think is best for them? Yeah. Well, we talk about helicopter parenting. I always break it down into three actual behaviors. One is the you will be an investment banker. You will be a doctor. There's only five careers that we will love you for doing, you know. And so we're forcing you to be something. And that's all about our ego. It's about our need for posturing and showing off. And like our family looks better in the eyes of others if you're a doctor. Like, or the narrow belief that you can only be successful in life if you are a doctor or a banker. That's just false. So like, let's stop pretending that that's, you know, we want what's best for them. No, you're, you really have a lot of ego investment in them being a this or that. And so parent, like, go get some therapy and figure out why you need to control your child so much. Uh, almost like they're a dog on a leash or like a racehorse that you're betting on to win the Kentucky Derby. Like, why are you treating your kid like an animal instead of respecting them as the human they are? The other types of helicopter parenting are the, so there's the fiercely directive or authoritarian that I just described. Then there's the total opposite best friend, just want to make life easier, just want to be like your handler, your concierge, walk around with the clipboard, make sure you haven't forgotten a single deadline or, you know, I've taken care of it all. Like I'm your assistant. And then there's the really fearful parent who's just so afraid of everything, maybe because of traumas they've experienced. They can't let you out of their eyesight. They have to GPS track you. They would never let you get on a bus. They would never let you get on a subway, um, you know, until you're 30, you know, just like totally afraid. Um, and that parents got a lot of all the all the parents have have work to do on themselves. Like, wh why? Why am I making my child my purpose? My purpose is to love them, feed them, shelter them, and let them learn everything they need to know to be independent rather than my purpose is to hold them in my arms for the rest of my life, um, knowing that they're safe and secure in my arms. Yeah, what happens when you put them down? Then they're just a puddle on the floor because they've got no strength, no skills, no capabilities, and no trust in their own instincts. Instincts are developed by doing. You can't develop instincts by having your parents handle everything for you. Okay, so tell me what I need to do. Or when I say me, I mean all of us. If we're willing and open to make some changes, and I know that it's going to matter the age of your kids, but what are your suggestions for people that are going to, whether it's the books or the, you know, the therapist, I guess their therapist might give them some intel there, uh, but are reaching out wanting to make some changes, what do you suggest? So there are two different realms I'll talk about. One is skill building and one is um, emotional wellness. Um, and they are related. Um, the more kids build skills, the more of a sense of self they feel, the less likely they are to be depressed or anxious. But I'll go specifically into the anxiety piece in a second. First, let's talk about skills. We have a four-step method for teaching any kid any skill. And this really starts as young as two. <laughs> Okay. Uh, step one, first you do it for them. Step two, you do it with them. Step three, 
you watch them do it. Step four, they can do it without you. So um, picture uh, teaching a kid to cross the street. Step one, you carry them across the street. Um, they play no role in, they're not learning, they're not listening, they're just being carried. Step two, they're old enough to walk, hold your hand, and you're going to pick the street where you want to start to teach them. You're going to say, hey, buddy, let's talk about how we cross the street safely. And you're really using a teacher voice. Your language is slow. Your tone is positive. Don't do this when you're busy. When you're in a rush, you're just going to pick them up and carry them. Don't do this when you're in a rush. Speaks to why we might not be teaching them. We're too busy to teach our own kids the skills of life. So you talk about, you look left and right and left, and here's where we stand to be safe while we look. And you hold their hands and they hear you narrating the process and you walk across the street together and you do step two enough times, you can move to the very terrifying step, step three, where you let go of their hands. You've observed developmentally, they've stopped darting out into traffic. They know to stand there next to you and you say, hey, buddy, it's your turn to decide whether it's safe to cross. I'm here. Uh, to help you should you need it, but I want to hear you do it. And this is where you have to resist the urge to be the decider and only really step in if they're making a bad decision. Like, all right, so you let you say, let me hear you do it. You're looking left and right. You do step and then the kid decides it's safe to cross. And if it's not safe, you're there to put your hand out and say, wait a minute, buddy, you didn't look. Yep, there's a garbage truck. Oh, right. You do step three enough that you can get to step four finally, which is you're at home, your kid is crossing the streets of America and you're not terrified. And that applies to everything. Make a meal on the stove, take public transportation, buy things at a store. It applies to everything. It applies to you know wiping their behinds. There are people wiping their kids' behinds too long. There are people bathing their kids too long. And it gets awkward. I've had parents say, like, I'm still bathing my 11-year-old. And I'm like, you need to stop. Well, they don't know how. Well, why didn't you teach them when they were six? Now you're in their prepubescent stage, and it's inappropriate for you to have your hands on their body. Like, what is wrong with you? Why did you lose your mind? <laughs> like, is these funny stories, but we're talking about humans, right? Okay, so teach them all the skills. Go ahead. You want to say something? No. Well, I, I'm one. I'm flabbergasted. Eleven years. You know, I keep using that word. Eleven years old. But uh, on the same note, everybody comes from a different place, and so I think that as I'm sitting here thinking, I mean, my kid's fourteen. I'm like, oh my goodness, driving. Uh, one of the things that you brought up is is having time. Our society is just so rush, rush, rush. We're filling our schedules, whether it's for us or for our kids and for our families. And I found that so much especially in the last several years and dealing with my own storied health history is giving us time and space to just be has helped me kind of understand the cueing I might need to teach my son how to do something. And I mean, who knows? Like there's so many things I could use help on, of course. But I think giving myself time and not rushing things has been helpful yeah. when it's come for what I'm working on. Yeah, good for you. I want to add on the emotional side. So there's the skill building, cross the street, make a meal, bathe yourself. Then on the emotional side of life, when they're afraid of something, um, there's a guy everybody must pay attention to. He's a faculty member at Yale named Ellie, E-L-I, Leibowitz. He, his work was profiled in The Atlantic uh, in the spring of 2020 called Anxiety in Children. He has a new book out called Breaking Free of Child Anxiety and OCD, a Scientifically Proven Program for Parents. 
And he was just on my friend, Ned Johnson's podcast um, and talking about his book. And what he's here to tell parents is children with fears, fear and worry is normal. And um, it's not inherently terrible, but we have trouble handling our kids' feelings of fear and worry. So we tend to, in this modern era, either try to prevent them from ever experiencing the thing that brings fear, or we dismiss. So that's the sort of overly attentive, like we'll curate the family situation so you never have to be in the dark or you never have to be alone or you always get the foods you like. That's telling a kid, oh my gosh, this thing I'm afraid of must be so terrible. Look how hard my parents are working to be sure I don't experience it. That blows the fear up to a full-blown anxiety. Like it must be so terrifying. We just, re we make it worse. Same with if we dismiss their feelings. Oh, don't feel that way. It's not that bad. You know, that that is not helpful for them either. What we have to say is, this is hard for you. I can see this is hard for you. You're really struggling. Do you want to talk about it? We have to not be afraid of their feelings. We have to let them express their feelings. And then we have to pause and offer the the our own opinion, which is, I know this won't always be hard for you. I know this is something that won't always be, be this hard. We have to express optimism about their ability to handle it. And not in a dismissive way, like get over it, you're a baby, right? But like, I know this is hard and I know it's not always going to be hard and I'm rooting for you to do the work, you know, so that you, so that it gets better over time. That's what we're supposed okay, to be I'm doing. notes here. I'm taking notes here because I love what you're saying and how you're saying it. What else can you share about? I don't want to say what we should and shouldn't be saying, but I, I you know, I know I read in some of your work that, and it rang a bell. Um, oh, you know, buddy, do your best, do your best. And so I feel like some of the language that I use, that we use, has good meaning but might not be what is good for our child. Do you have any other suggestions like that? How we can talk differently? When I talk to teenagers, yeah, my new book, Your Turn, How to Be an Adult is for teens and young adults trying to live their best life. And, you know, and I do like, yay, I do the summary of like the advice in that enormous book. I One of the things I tell young people is I say, how many of you have heard, just do your best, honey, all we ask is that you do your best and all of them put up their hands. And I say, well, let me tell you something. Just do your best means only always do your best. That's an impossibly high standard. None of the grownups in your life is only always doing our best. What we mean is actually try hard every time that it's your effort that you have control over that sometimes it won't go your way and that's normal and okay, but we want to know you can pick yourself back up and try again. It's not about perfection. Be your best all the time. You know, it's try hard every time. And I think it's a much more forgiving, uh, not forgiving. It's a much kinder offering. So I would switch just do your best to work hard, try hard each time. Work hard, try hard, get back up. You know, um, here's another reframe. Instead of when they, when they, you know, whether they're five or 15 or 25 and they've left their back backpack or their bag somewhere, you know, instead of you being like, oh my gosh, I have to handle that. You empathize and empower. You say, wow, oh, I'm so sorry. I hate it when I forget my bag. Are you all right? How you doing? 
empathy, kindness, then pause and say, how do you think you're going to handle that, honey? That tells them it's a problem. It's not my problem. It's your problem. And I think you can. And that final message is what's missing from modern parenting. Modern parenting is, I think you can't, but don't worry, I'll do it for you. That's why I'm bathing you at 11. I don't think you can bathe yourself. Don't worry, I'll do it for you, okay? How do you think you're going to handle it, buddy? Is a really empowering thing to say, unless they're bleeding at the side of the road. That's when they need you to go rescue them, for sure. But most of their problems are not the equivalent of that. And we treat them as if they are, right? So, right, when they're in college and they're like, I just left my backpack and I'm like... Do not drop everything and drive 45 minutes to your kid in college. Like if they live near, if they're in college nearby, like it's their situation to solve. If it is the biggest test of their life and they have overslept and need a ride, go give them a ride, but stop treating everything like it's the biggest test of their life. Here's a more glib way to say, how do you think you're going to handle it? You might say, sounds like a problem a five-year-old can solve if they're five. If they're 15, sounds like a problem a 15-year-old can solve. You say it with a smile. You're not mean. You're not an asshole authoritarian. You know, you're just saying like, this is yours and I think you can. And then you might add, let me know how it all went, honey. And then you smile and walk away. Oh, you make it sound so easy. Ah, ah, you smile and walk away and your heart is fluttering. Let me give you an example from my own life because Sawyer, my 24-year-old who gives me permission to talk about this is... Um, he's got ADHD, he's got anxiety, he's a sensitive, loving kid. And my instinct has been protect, protect, don't have him experience the tough things of life, which I'm afraid he can't handle. Well, that really came back to bite him and us in his early 20s. And I realized I was over accommodating. I was doing the opposite of what Ellie Leibowitz at Yale would recommend. And we had to repattern. We went into family therapy to really figure out a new dynamic for the three of us, his dad and me and him. And here's an example of how I implemented finally correctly. He was anticipating uh, a phone call with his boss at a summer camp a couple summers ago who wanted to talk with him about in the, in the, you know, in the wake of the murder of George Floyd, where, where, you know, my, my son is multiracial, black and white. And his boss, a white guy wanted to talk with my son about like, how do I make sure my, my camp is inclusive? And so it wasn't like, you know, so I hadn't done anything wrong. But Sawyer was nervous about this call. Like, what is he going to want from me? Do I have the right ideas? I'm not sure I know the answer. Like, and I wanted to like soothe him. I wanted to sit there on the phone with him as he talked to his boss, maybe offer his boss some of my thoughts, but that was not the role. So I said to Sawyer, you know, my instinct would be to like handhold you through this call, but I realize that's not empowering. You know, this is hard, Sawyer, but you know what? You do hard things. That's the reframe. Wow. I'm like teary eyed now because that it, it is hard. The first time I said this to him, Karen, his eyes flew open wide like saucers and he goes, I do hard things. And I was like, yeah, you do. And here I am crying, like retelling it. And I smiled and I nodded and I backed up and I said, I'm going to be in my office, but you've got this. And that was my way of saying, I'm not abandoning you, you know, right? I am, you know where to find me if you decide you need me, but you do hard things, son. It has become a mantra in our house, okay? The other thing I got to share is my daughter, oh, I like to fix and handle for my baby girl. And she doesn't <laughs> want that. 
So she calls home from pandemic fall 2020. Uh, she's back at her college out at Duke. She's living off campus, so she does, she can't get her housing taken away like happened in the spring. No matter what happens with this pandemic, she's like, I will have a place to live near school. She calls home one day. She's got me and her dad on FaceTime. And she's like, guys, you know, my my I got to get my Internet hooked up in this apartment. I can't reach my landlord. I have to print a paper. I don't have the Wi-Fi. I got to register my DMV with the North Carolina DM. I'm my, sorry. I have to register my scooter with the North Carolina DMV. Like she's spinning. And I'm like, baby, don't register your scooter. <laughs> like, that's not the priority right now. She's like, mom, I know stop. I'm just, you know, just, can you not? Oh, so I've learned what I have to do, empathize and then ask, do you want suggestions or just, are you trying to vent? Right. So I was like, first empathy. Wow. That sounds like a lot. You have a lot going on. You just repeat back what they said, man, your printer, the Wi-Fi, your landlord, the DMV, it's a lot. Your first paper is due. And then so I empathize and then I pause and say, you know what? I am here for empathy. I am here for ideas if you need them. You just let me know what you're asking for. And then she'll tell me. And now finally I can execute that without like, I really want to share my ideas. I'm pretty like she trusts now that I am not over overly needing to control and fix her. So she's more likely to ask for, she just called me from Europe with the passport that got stolen. She's like, all right, mom, it's day four of no passport. Here's how I'm handling it. I want your advice on what do I do when I get to the UK on my temporary passport and don't have any pounds. How do you think I should, you know, she's like, I need your advice on this. And I'm like, terrific. You know, let me, I'm happy to brainstorm it with you. Because I have finally taught wow. her that I'm not just constantly trying to fix her. She's more likely to come toward me and seek my help. And that's ultimately what we want. Well, and to your point, I don't know how many times I, I've said, and I'm sure so many people out there have said, we're here for you, we're here for you, we're here for you. But at some point, and you never really know when that point is, we may physically not be. Right. And so it is empowering to teach them with the small things because then it builds the confidence, I would assume, for the bigger things. And when you're telling me that story, wow, she's halfway across the world and she's taking care of this on her own and she's still there asking you, but yet taking care of it. Like, that's huge. Mm -hmm. that, and that's that's ultimately, I think, where a lot of us want to be. I just, I, I want to just jump through the computer and give you a big hug. I feel like, like I said in the beginning, I feel like I know you. And your your voice is so soothing and yet also so um, like kind and passionate that you're giving this advice and I feel like it's a big sister that's been through this before me. And, and, and again, to the point you're really relatable and the fact that you're not here dictating this is what you need to do. You're talking about what's worked, what hasn't worked, and the why. And that's why I have loved your your books. Um, I have you know two of them here, Real American. I do not have on my countertop right now, but these three, I will put the links in the show notes. I will also put Eli Leibowitz's yes. um, link in there as well because, oh, there's, there's Real, Real American, American in the video. Yeah, it's the hardcover. That's me as a little baby. Oh. Yeah, this is on race. This is on racial identity and microaggressions and racism, yeah. And that that was your second book, correct? correct. And then the, th the third one, Your Turn, How to Be an Adult. So I will make sure I include all those because I know that they that these, obviously, all these topics that in some ways it just, it, it, it's who you are, who we are as a community that you're passionate about and you want to share, educate, inspire, 
and, and you've done that for me and for countless others. So I thank you. And so I guess that leads into where I love to go to end these podcasts is talking about gratitude. Now, um, for those of you that are new to me, I always end each podcast uh, talking about gratitude and playing, quote unquote, the grateful game. It is something my son and I started when he was nine. He is now 14. And I was telling Julie earlier, I kind of think it's because he just didn't want to go to bed. And he's like, ooh, mom wants to talk about gratitude. What's that? I'll tell her what was good in my day. Now, what I found is as we continue to make this a habit, like anything mindful we add to our life, we started to look for the good things in our day that we appreciate it. Even when life is tough, and mind you, for all of us, we've gone through hardship. And so not every day is going to be the way we want it to. But I found, like, yeah, has uh, has playing the grateful game changed my cancer? Well, no, probably not. But has it made me feel better in the moment? Has it made me go through my days looking for good things when maybe it's a bit gloomy, absolutely. And that's brought more smiles to my face. That's brought positive energy to my life. And I think that's key. And so if you're listening out there, I encourage you, as I'm going to ask Julie what she is grateful for and why today, I'd like you to think about something because it doesn't need to be the big things. Sometimes it's the little things that can take our day in another direction. So Julie, tossing the mic to you. 23 years ago, my partner Dan and I bought a home with my mother, Jeannie. We did it to buy it, to have a home in the right school district, air quotes, Palo Alto, California. And uh, it was hard for many, many years. Uh, turns out my mother-daughter dynamic with my mom is complicated. And we would fight and yell and it was horrible. And, and you know, it was, I could have written a whole book about how awful it was. I am now in an age in an era of my mother is elderly aging. She has some health issues and we all, she lives now in an attached cottage on the same property. And I have coffee with her every morning now and have since the start of the pandemic. And I actually enjoy it now and look forward to it. And I'm grateful that she's right here, steps away as she's elderly and aging and dealing with health issues. I'm glad I'm the one that goes to doctor's appointments with her. I'm glad I have a notebook where I keep track of her various needs. And, you know, I'm, I'm functioning as her memory more and more. I'm functioning as her advocate. And I am grateful that we, we entered into this arrangement um, that was hell at times, um, but has been filled with tremendous upsides like free childcare. And Dan and I could get away for a lover's getaway because my mom was here. Now I'm getting to care for her the way she cared for our children and for us in ways that I probably didn't fully appreciate until I'm seeing the reciprocity here. So I never thought I'd say this, but I'm grateful wow. I live with my mother and have. And uh, it's it's been hard for me to get to this point. So I want to declare it now that I'm here. Well, that's beautiful. And again, another moment that you're bringing tears to my eyes. It's, uh, you know, it sounds like it's been a journey because I guess that's kind of what life is. But the fact that you have this time now and maybe it's not exactly how you planned it, but that you can enjoy it. That's really beautiful. So thank you for sharing that. Thank you. you know, so much of what you say has, has, has touched my heart. Um, for those that are you were listening out there, I hope that we have provided a conversation, one that you've enjoyed and, and two that's informed you. In, in different areas that might help 
with your parenting or somebody you know. So I encourage you, please, to um, you know, share this episode with others if you um, if you've enjoyed it and check out Julie, whether it's her books. I'll leave the links in my uh, in the show notes of this. And Julie, where can people reach out to you social media wise, your website? What's the best platform? Thanks so much for the offer. I'm Jay Lithcott Hames, my first initial, last name, no hyphen, everywhere on social media, including threads, which is seemingly going to be competing with Twitter, which <laughs> yep. is awesome. Uh, my website is Julie Lithcott Hames, no hyphen, julielithcotthames.com. Uh, please do follow me. I do write a weekly newsletter called Julie's Pod, and that's where I really try to reflect on what's happening in the world or my world, I, I tend to write about vulnerable emotions and feelings and interactions we have to try to share with others like, yeah, this is hard, but this is also good. And then Julie's Pod comes with all kinds of goodies like stickers from me and uh, lists of recommended items and, and a Dear Julie column. And so there's really a lot going on in Julie's Pod. So all of that is really accessible through my website, juliethcutthames.com. Uh, go there and, and you can find all the other things from once you're there. Well, that's great. And as I said, I'll make sure if you're driving right now or don't have access to write it all down, it will be in the show notes so you can check that out. Again, I am jumping through this computer. I'm giving you a big hug. Thank you so much for taking this time with us today. I am incredibly grateful, not just for this conversation, but all that you have put out into the world. You truly have made this world a better place by just helping us as individuals and as a community of parents and like-minded folks, and even those that might not agree with some of what you or I have to say, to understand that how we can live a more, you know, as you said, meaningful and purposeful life. And I, I think that's part of what we're here for. So, um, and thank you for those who are listening. Uh, it's been a joy for me. As you know, I love these conversations and I'd love to hear from you as well. So, you know, reach out at Pretty Wellness and let me know your thoughts. I, um, I hope that this has been enjoyable and that we've been able to help you find a little bit of joy during, you know, whatever avenue you're going down in your parenting journey. So have a great day, everyone. And bye for now. One more thing, I would be so grateful if you'd take a minute to rate, review, and subscribe. You leaving a review helps us with our podcast ranking. The higher we are ranked, the more people can discover our show. Thank you so much for joining us today. I'm sending you lots of happiness and great health.